Chapter Fourteen of Volume One of the American Senator. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piper Hayes. The American Senator by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Fourteen of Volume One The Dillsborough Feud. It's that nasty, beastly, drunken club said mrs masters to her unfortunate husband on the wednesday morning it may perhaps be remembered that the poison fox was found on the saturday and it may be imagined that mr goarly had risen in importance since that day on the saturday bean with a couple of men employed by lord rufford had searched the wood and found four or five red herrings poisoned with strychnine there had been no doubt about the magnitude of the offence on the monday a detective policeman dressed of course in rustic disguise but not the less known to every one in the place was wandering about between dillsborough and dillsborough wood and making futile inquiries as to the purchase of strychnine and also as to the purchase of red herrings but every one knew and such leading people as runciman and dr nupper were not slow to declare that dillsborough was the only place in england in which one might be sure that those articles had not been purchased and on the tuesday it began to be understood that goarly had applied to bearside the other attorney in reference to his claim against lord rufford's pheasants he had contemptuously refused the seven shillings sixpence an acre offered him and put his demand at forty shillings as to the poisoned fox and the herrings and the strychnine goarly declared that he didn't care if there were twenty detectives in the place he stated it to be his opinion that larry twentyman had put down the poison it was all very well goarly said for larry to be fond of gentlemen and to ride to hounds and make pretenses but larry liked his turkeys as well as anybody else and larry had put down the poison in this matter goarly overreached himself no one in dillsborough could be brought to believe that even harry stubbings was ready to swear that he should suspect himself as soon but nothing was clearer than this that goarly was going to make a stand against the hunt and especially against lord rufford he had gone to bearside and bearside had taken up the matter in a serious way then it became known very quickly that bearside had already received money and it was surmised that goarly had some one at his back lord rufford had lately ejected from a house of his on the other side of the county a discontented litigious retired grocer from rufford who had made some money and had set himself up in a pretty little residence with a few acres of land the man had made himself objectionable and had been dispossessed the man's name was scrobby and hence had come these sorrows this was the story that had already made itself known in dillsborough on the tuesday evening but up to that time not a tittle of evidence had come to light as to the purchase of the red herrings or the strychnine all that was known was the fact that had not tony tuppet stopped the hounds before they reached the wood there must have been a terrible mortality it's that nasty beastly drunken club said mrs masters to her husband of course it was at this time known to the lady that her husband had thrown away goarly's business and that it had been transferred to bearside 
it was also surmised by her as it was by the town in general that goarly's business would come to considerable dimensions just the sort of case as would have been sure to bring popularity if carried through as nickem the senior clerk would have carried it and as soon as scrobby's name was heard by mrs masters there was no end to the money in the lady's imagination to which this very case might not have amounted the club had nothing to do with it my dear what time did you come home on saturday night or sunday morning i mean do you mean to tell me you didn't settle it there there was no nastiness and no beastliness and no drunkenness about it i told you before i went that i wouldn't take it no you didn't how on earth are you to go on if you chuck the children's bread out of their mouths in that way you won't believe me do you ask twentyman what sort of man goarly is the attorney knew that larry was in great favor with his wife as being the favored suitor for mary's hand and had thought that this argument would be very strong i don't want mr twentyman to teach me what is proper for my family nor yet to teach you your business mr twentyman has his own way of living he brought home kate the other day with hardly a rag of her sister's habit left she don't go out hunting any more very well my dear indeed for the matter of that i don't see how any of them are to do anything what'll lord rufford do for you i don't want lord rufford to do anything for me the attorney was beginning to have his spirit stirred within him you don't want anybody to do anything and yet you will do nothing yourself just because a set of drinking fellows in a tap-room which you call a club it isn't a tap-room it's worse because nobody can see what you're doing i know how it was you hadn't the pluck to hold your own when runciman told you not there was a spice of truth in this which made it all the more bitter runciman knows on which side his bread is buttered he can make his money out of these swearing tearing fellows he can send in his bills and get them paid too and it's all very well for larry twentyman to be hobbing and nobbing with the likes of them botsies but for a father of a family like you to be put off his business by what mr runciman says is a shame i shall manage my business as i think fit said the attorney and when we're all in the poorhouse what'll you do then said mrs masters with her handkerchief out at the spur of the moment whenever she roused her husband to a state of bellicose ire by her taunts she could always reduce him again by her tears being well aware of this he would bear the taunts as long as he could knowing that the tears would be still worse he was so soft-hearted that when she affected to be miserable he could not maintain the sternness of his demeanour and leave her in her misery when everything has gone away from us what are we to do my little bit of money has disappeared ever so long then she sat herself down in her chair and had a great cry it was useless for him to remind her that hitherto she had never wanted anything for herself or her children she was resolved that everything was going to the dogs because goarly's case had been refused and what will all those sporting men do for you she repeated i hate the very name of a gentleman so i do i wish goarly had killed all the foxes in the county nasty vermin what good are the likes of them 
Nickem, the senior clerk, was at first made almost as unhappy as Mrs. Masters by the weak decision to which his employer had come, and had, in the first flush of his anger, resolved to leave the office. He was sure that the case was one which would just have suited him. He would have got up the evidence as to the fertility of the land, the enormous promise of crop, and the ultimate absolute barrenness to a marvel. He would have proved clouds of pheasants, and then Gourley's humble position, feudal industry, and general poverty might have been contrasted beautifully with Lord Rufford's wealth, idleness, and devotion to sport. Anything above the seven shillings sixpence an acre obtained against the Lord would have been a triumph, and he thought that if the thing had been well managed, they might probably have got fifteen shillings. And then, in such a case, Lord Rufford could hardly have taxed the costs. It was really suicide for an attorney to throw away business so excellent as this. And now it had gone to Bearside, whom Nickham remembered as a junior to himself, when they were both young hobbledehoys at Norrington, a dirty, blear-eyed, pimply-faced boy, who was suspected of purloining halfpence out of coat-pockets. The thing was very trying to Nat Nickham. But suddenly, before that Wednesday was over, another idea had occurred to him, and he was almost content. He knew Gourley, and he had heard of Scrobby, and Scrobby's history in regard to the tenement at Rufford. As he could not get Gourley's case, why should he not make something of the case against Gourley? That detective was merely eking out his time and having an idle week among the public houses. If he could set himself up as an amateur detective, he thought that he might perhaps get to the bottom of it all. It is not a bad thing to be concerned on the same side with the Lord when the Lord is in earnest. Lord Rufford was very angry about the poison in the covert, and would probably be ready to pay very handsomely for having the criminal found and punished. The criminal, of course, was Gourley. Nickham did not doubt that for a moment, and would not have doubted it whichever side he might have taken. Nickham did not suppose that anyone for a moment really doubted Gourley's guilt. But to his eyes such certainty amounted to nothing, if evidence of the crime were not forthcoming. He probably felt within his own bosom that the last judgment of all would depend in some way on terrestrial evidence, and was quite sure that it was by such that a man's conscience should be affected. If Gourley had so done the deed as to be beyond the possibility of detection, Nickham could not have brought himself to regard Gourley as a sinner. As it was, he had considerable respect for Gourley. But might it not be possible to drop down upon Scrobby? Bearside, with his case against the Lord, would be nowhere, if Gourley could be got to own that he had been suborned by Scrobby to put down the poison. Or, if in default of this, any close communication could be proved between Gourley and Scrobby, Scrobby's injury and spirit of revenge being patent, then, too, Bearside would not have much of a case. A jury would look at that question of damages with a very different eye if Scrobby's spirit of revenge could be proved at the trial, and also the poisoning, and also machinations between Scrobby and Corley. Nickham was a little red-haired man about forty, who wrote a good flourishing hand, could endure an immense amount of work, and drink a large amount of alcohol without being drunk. His nose and face were all over blotches, 
and he looked to be dissipated and disreputable. But, as he often boasted, no one could say that black was the white of his eye, by which he meant to insinuate that he had not been detected in anything dishonest, and that he was never too tipsy to do his work. He was a married man, and did not keep his wife and children in absolute comfort, but they lived, and Mr. Nickham in some fashion paid his way. There was another clerk in the office, a very much younger man, named Sundown, and Nickham could not make his proposition to Mr. Masters till Sundown had left the office. Nickham himself had only matured his plans at dinner-time, and was obliged to be reticent till at six o'clock Sundown took himself off. Mr. Masters was, at the moment, locking his own desk, when Nickham winked at him to stay. Mr. Masters did stay, and Sundown did, at last, leave the office. "'You couldn't let me leave home for three days,' said Nickham. "'There ain't much a-doing.' "'What do you want it for?' "'That Corley is a great blackguard, Mr. Masters.' "'Very likely. Do you know anything about him?' Nickham scratched his head and rubbed his chin. "'I think I could manage to know something.' "'In what way?' "'I don't think I'm quite prepared to say, sir. I shouldn't use your name, of course. But they're down upon Lord Rufford, and if you could lend me a trifle of thirty shillings, sir, I think I could get to the bottom of it. His lordship would be awful obliged to anyone who could hit it off.' Mr. Masters did give his clerk leave for three days, and did advance him the required money, and when he suggested, in a whisper, that perhaps the circumstance need not be mentioned to Mrs. Masters, Nickham winked again, and put his forefinger to the side of his big carbuncled nose. That evening Larry Twentyman came in, but was not received with any great favor by Mrs. Masters. There was growing up at this moment in Dillsborough the bitterness of real warfare between the friends and enemies of sport in general, and Mrs. Masters was ranking herself thereby among the enemies. Larry was, of course, one of the friends. But unhappily there was a slight difference of sentiment even in Larry's own house, and on this very morning old Mrs. Twentyman had expressed to Mrs. Masters a feeling of wrong which had gradually risen from the annual demolition of her pet broods of turkeys. She declared that for the last three years every turkey poult had gone, and that at last she was beginning to feel it. "'It's over a hundred of them they've had, and it is wearing,' said the old woman. Larry had twenty times begged her to give up the rearing turkeys, but her heart had been too high for that. "'I don't know why Lord Rufford's foxes are to be thought of always,' "'And nobody is to think about your poor mother's poultry,' said Mrs. Masters, lugging the subject in neck and heels. "'Has she been talking to you, Mrs. Masters, about her turkeys?' "'Your mother may speak to me, I suppose, if she likes it, without offence to Lord Rufford.' "'Lord Rufford has got nothing to do with it.' "'The wood belongs to him,' said Mrs. Masters. "'Foxes are much better than turkeys, anyway,' said Kate Masters. "'If you don't hold your tongue, miss, you'll be sent to bed. "'The wood belongs to his lordship, and the foxes are a nuisance.' "'He keeps the foxes for the county, and where would the county be without them?' began Larry. "'What is it brings money into such a place as this?' 
to runciman's stables and harry stubbings and the like of them what money does it bring in to steady honest people look at all the grooms said larry the impudentest set of young vipers about the place said the lady look at grice's business grice was the saddler grice indeed what's grice and the price of horses yes making everything dear that ought to be cheap i don't see and i never shall see and i never will see any good in extravagant idleness as for kate she shall never go out hunting again she has torn mary's habit to pieces and shooting is worse why is a man to have a flock of voracious cormorants come down upon his cornfields i'm all in favor of goarly and so i tell you mr twentyman after this poor larry went away finding that he had no opportunity for saying a word to mary masters End of chapter fourteen of volume one